Uh, let's go to the Lord in prayer. Father God, I thank you so much for this day. I thank you that you have given us the opportunity and the freedom to worship you today. I pray that we wouldn't get tired of that. I pray that we wouldn't take it for granted, but that we would uh, devote our whole heart to you, not only today, but through the week, Lord. I thank you, Lord, that your scriptures reveal to us that you are a God who is providentially in control of everything, um, even the sin and suffering that we experience. And Lord, I just pray today as we look at your word, as we look throughout history to see how you have acted in the lives of people, I just pray that it would lead, Lord, to praise. And I just pray, Lord, that right now that you would do a work in our hearts and that we would uh, be focused on you. In Jesus' name I pray, amen. And when you start reading your Bible in Genesis 1, verse 1, you're immediately face-to-face with a God who is powerful enough and good enough to create a beautiful creation. It says, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. And you see, if you go to the end of chapter 1, that God says, Then God saw everything he had made, and indeed it was very good. So the evening and the morning were the sixth day. And you learn that part of this very good creation includes a beautiful garden, the Garden of Eden. Adam and Eve are in this garden. In chapter 2, verses 8 and 9, the Lord God planted a garden eastward in Eden, and there he put the man whom he had formed. And out of the ground the Lord God made every tree grow, That is pleasant to the sight. It looked good and good for food. Tasted good. The tree of life was also in the midst of the garden. But not only did God make beautiful and delicious food and a garden, but also he made man and woman. And not only were they in the image of God, but it says, in Genesis 2, 24 and 25, Therefore a man shall leave his father and mother and be joined to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. And they were both naked, the man and his wife, and were not ashamed. I mean, pre- in uh, thinking about this message and preparing this week, I was thinking a lot about the significance of not being ashamed. But the very next verse... Genesis 3, chapter 1, shows us a sudden turn of evil when we read now the serpent. And when we read on further in Genesis, we see that the serpent poisoned Adam and Eve, causing them to sin against God. We see that all of creation ends up being corrupted by this sin. And the reach of this sin has horribly impacted each of our own hearts. This is why Jeremiah writes in Jeremiah 17, 9, The heart is deceitful above all things and desperately wicked. Who can know it? And so I don't have to wonder today if you have been seriously impacted by sin and suffering in your life. Life is difficult And we've all had to deal with it in different ways, whether it be depression, 
wars, cancer, miscarriages, death of your family and friends, maybe your own personal sin, persecution, and other relational conflict. And the question arises when we see a world like this, with sin and suffering, how is God glorified in a world when things went so wrong? Is it just that God doesn't care? Or is it that he does care, but he's not powerful enough to do anything about it? He's not good? The scriptures answer this question, and they overwhelmingly present a God who is shown to be sovereign, compassionate, and powerful, and good, even through sin and suffering. And so my prayer for us today, for my heart and for your heart today, is that through the scriptures we would worship the God who is glorified through sin and suffering. I hope we can say with the psalmist, Psalm 8, 9, O Lord, our Lord, how excellent is your name in all the earth, all of it. We see in the scriptures that God is not defeated by evil. He is not even surprised by evil. He's not passive, just responding to evil as it happens. He's not apathetic about evil. He's not a slave to the desires of humans. He is a great, awesome, good, powerful God who is passionate about our good for his glory. And he is working through all things, even sin and suffering according to the counsel of his will, to the praise of his glory. And so we're going to see today in Scripture as we go through uh, kind of a a little historical uh, uh, trip through Scripture, we're going to see four examples of God's glory through sin and suffering in Scripture. And these are not exhaustive. There's many, many ways that we can see God's providence through sin and suffering. But... These examples will give you a picture of who God is and how he acts through the sin and suffering of people. And so number one, we look in the scriptures, and you don't have to go too far before you come into the example of Joseph. And we see in the example of Joseph that God uses sin and suffering for good ends. He uses sin and suffering for good ends. We see Joseph, his life started pretty good. He was loved by his father. He was given a coat of many colors uh, from his father. But the problem was is that his brothers hated him. We see in Genesis 37, 18, now when they saw him afar off, him being his, or them being his brothers, even before he came near them, they conspired against him to kill him. The very next two verses read, Then they said to one another, Look, this dreamer is coming. Come, therefore, let us now kill him and cast him into some pit. And we shall say, Some wild beast has devoured him. We shall see what will become of his dreams. And the result of his brother's hatred is that Joseph is sold into slavery. After he's sold into slavery, things go uh, a little better for a time, but then he is lied about uh, by his uh, master Potiphar's wife, which results in him going to prison. 
And we see that the beginning of Joseph's life, in fact, more than just the beginning, years and years and years, it's marked by a righteous person who had done nothing wrong experiencing unrighteousness. A just person experiencing unjust circumstances. But even through this life, the life of Joseph, all of this sin and suffering, this unjust sin and suffering that Joseph experienced, is encompassed in one of the most striking verses in the entire Bible. When Joseph says in Genesis 50, 20, revealing to us that this sin and suffering that his brothers had brought against him and others had brought against him was being used by God for good ends. We see in Genesis 50, 20, but as for you, talking about his brothers, you meant evil against me, but... God meant it for good in order to bring it about as it is this day to save many people alive. And so we see here that God is sovereign over the evil choices of people. We know in Scripture that God doesn't do evil. Verses here like Psalm 5-4, for you are a God who, who take, for you are not a God who takes pleasure in wickedness nor shall evil dwell with you. And so we know that God does not do evil, him himself. But we see that the evil actions of people are not in some way usurping God's power. Notice here that the brothers intended their actions for evil. There wasn't some hidden good motive. They were doing evil. But as for you, he says, you meant evil against me. But even though their motive was evil and their actions were evil, God all along meant it for good. This is what he says, but God meant it for good. And so what is the it that he refers to? The it is the evil. The brothers you meant evil against me, but God meant it, the evil, for good. And so we see that God is sovereign over even the sinful choices of people. Through it all, God was intending their actions for good. You notice here also that God wills that the result of evil and the suffering be good. He says here, in order to bring it about as it is this day to save many people alive. And so through the sin of Joseph's brothers, it resulted in many people being saved. Now, not only is this the, the uh, Egyptians who were suffering from famine, they were provided for by Joseph's wisdom, but also Joseph's family is brought from, uh, I can't remember exactly where they were, it's brought to Egypt because of Joseph's being brought to Egypt before them. The result of the sin was God meaning it so that all these people would be saved. And so we see here also that God uses the sin and suffering of some people for the good of other people. And in fact, this is a picture of Christ. Joseph, although he is good, he suffers for the good of many people, in the same way that Christ, being righteous, has suffered for the good of many people. 
In the life of Joseph, God used the persecution, he used the injustice, he used the hatred to save an Israelite people from starvation. And ultimately what he did is he brought the Israelite people to Egypt, which set them up for 400 years later to be saved by God through the work of Moses. All of this because God meant the evil for good that Joseph's brothers meant for evil against him. And this is a God who is worth worshiping. This is a God worth worshiping. He uses sin and suffering for good ends. We are called to worship this God who doesn't just react to things that happens, but he's actively working through even the most horrible parts of life to bring about good, all of it in a way that doesn't attribute sin to himself. When we think about how to apply Joseph's example to our own life, we can remind ourselves that Joseph spent years in these places of difficulty. When he was in slavery, when he was in prison, he did not know what God's plan was going to be. He did not not know how it would work for good. He was left having to make the decision to have faith, even if he didn't know the future. And so Joseph teaches us to have faith in God, in the God who is working through all things, regardless of how we might feel about them or what we might see the positive outcome to be. He can even mean the evil choices of others against us for good. O Lord, our Lord, how excellent is your name in all the earth. Another striking example in Scripture is the example of Job. We see in the example of Job that God rules over the attacks of Satan. Now, Job, like Joseph, was a righteous man. We are, we're told in Job 1, verse 1, the first, book, first verse in the book, there was a man in the land of us whose name was Job, and that man was blameless and upright, and one who feared God and shunned evil. And God had blessed him. He had many possessions. He had a good family. He had health. But what happens is Satan takes all of it away to try to get Job to curse God. But through this example, we see that God rules over the attacks of Satan. We see first off in the book, first chapter, that our God is stronger than Satan. In verses 11 and 12, we see that Satan cannot act without God's permission. He can't act without God's permission. Uh, But now stretch out your hand and touch all that he has, Satan says, and he will surely curse you to your face. And the Lord said to Satan, Behold, all that he has is in your power. Only do not lay a hand on his person. So Satan went out from the presence of the Lord. And so we see here that Satan was unable to attack Job apart from the permission of God. And if we look at the various ways that Job suffered in his life, he suffered physical suffering, he suffered the loss of his family, His physical possessions were taken away by an army. We see that his family was killed because a natural disaster struck the house. 
And so we see that Satan is unable to use all of these areas of suffering, areas that we have, uh, most all of us have experienced in our own lives. Satan is unable to use them apart from God's permission. God is sovereign over these areas of suffering. And the question naturally arises, why? Why would God allow Job to go through this suffering? What's even a little more chilling is if you realize in the first chapter of the book of Job that Satan is not the one who brings Job up to God. In fact, it is God who says to Satan, Have you considered my servant Job? Why? I think the book of Job is clear that God uses sin and suffering, especially in the life of Job and in our lives too, to prove his greatness and to prove his glory. In fact, at the end of the book of Job, God spends 129 verses proclaiming his glory to Job. 129 verses. We see some of them here, chapter 38, verses 1 through 4. Then the Lord answered Job out of the whirlwind and said, Who is this who darkens counsel by words without knowledge? Now prepare yourself like a man. I will question you, and you shall answer me. Where were you when I laid the foundations of the earth? Tell me, if you have understanding, who determined its measurements? Surely you know. Or who stretched the line upon it? To what were its foundations fastened? Or who laid its cornerstone? When the morning stars sang together and all the sons of God shouted for joy. Again, in chapter 40, verse 2, Shall the one who contends with the Almighty correct him? He who rebukes God, let him answer it. In these 129 verses, like this, what God does is bring example after example of mysteries in nature. You see some of them in the verses we just read where God says, Where were you when I laid the foundations of the earth? Who determined its measurements? God is challenging Job by saying, You don't know how to create an earth. You don't know how to describe its measurements, and he does this for 129 verses. All to show that if Job cannot even explain the mysteries of natural creation, how can he explain and challenge a God who created it? He can't. Job is left with the only option. He has a choice. He either has to have faith in God, or he's going to reject him. As his wife says, curse God and die. That's his choice. The existence of evil, either outside or inside of our lives, doesn't put us in a place to judge God. We are left, as Job is left, deciding, are we going to have a faith in God, who is revealed in Scripture to be in control and good, or are we going to reject him? But we see in, that, in the book of Job that God uses this suffering also in Job's life to bring about repentance. In uh, verses 2 and 3, or 2 through 6, 
This is Job speaking. He says, I know that you can do everything and that no purpose of yours can be withheld from you. You asked, who is this that hides counsel without knowledge? Therefore, I have uttered what I did not understand, things too wonderful for me which I did not know. Listen, please, and let me speak. You said I will question you, and you shall answer me. I have heard of you by the hearing of the ear, but now my eye sees you. Therefore, I abhor myself and repent in dust and ashes. And so Job, uh, because of the revelation of God to him, repents. And God is glorified in this because Job, through the suffering and through the conversation with his friends and God, comes to a place of greater faith in God. We also see, though, that God is glorified in Job's life by healing his suffering. Uh, Not only does God heal his health, but God gives him more riches than he had ever had before. He gives him seven sons and three daughters. In fact, in Job 42, verse 10, and the Lord restored I guess I don't have it on the screen, but... Uh, and the Lord restored Job's losses. Indeed, the Lord gave Job twice as much as he had before. Twice as much as he had before. And this is a God worth worshiping. This is a God worth worshiping. God is God, and we are not. He gives many examples to Job to prove this point and to leave us with the decision of faith or the decision to reject him in despair. And this is something maybe you struggled with in your life. Um, I have come face to face with this decision, um, notably through the example uh, of my brother and his uh, suffering from seizures, because the way that that situation has happened is that through the years, the many years of it going on, he has severe epilepsy, if you don't know, um, things have gotten worse rather than better, despite all the prayers from so many people. And it's hard to understand in that situation what God is doing. There's no physical good that, that has come from it. It's got worse. And so I've been brought to a place in my life where the temptation is despair. The temptation is to believe that God is a God who doesn't care. But by God's grace, uh, my faith has grown through this. The The faith of my parents has grown through this. And I've realized that the place of faith um, is the only legitimate place to be. In fact, I read a quote this week from uh, Augustine, and this is what he says, which I think just is a, a great way to say it. He says, God knew that it pertained more to his almighty goodness even to bring good out of evil than not to permit evil to be. What is he saying there? He's saying that God chose to bring evil or to bring good out of evil rather than to stop evil from never happening. And the only way 
to wrestle through the Christian life and the existence of sin and suffering is to come to a place where you believe that God chose that because it's better, because he is God. And so have faith with this God. O Lord, our Lord, how excellent is your name in all the earth. So we see the example of Joseph, the example of Job. Another powerful example through the Old Testament is the example of David. We see through the example of David that God works through personal sin for good. And this is so comforting because we're not talking here about the evil actions of others. We're not talking about suffering that Satan brings to us. We're talking about our own personal choice to reject God. And we see through the example of David that God's even working through that. He's even working for your choice to sin. David was a man after God's own heart, we're told. And even though David loved God, he sinned horribly. He was meant to be off at war, but he was home instead. He saw uh, Bathsheba. He stole her. He got her pregnant. After he realized he got her pregnant, he tried to convince her husband to sleep with her, to hide his own sin. And when that didn't work, he had her husband killed, murdered. But even through this terrible sin, we see that God works through the personal sin of David for good in a couple ways. The first way is that God is glorified in the life of David by punishing his sin. God is revealed to be great in punishing sin. We see in 2 Samuel 12, 9, the prophet Nathan confronts David. And what does he say? Why have you despised the commandment of the Lord to do evil in his sight? You have killed Uriah the Hittite with the sword. You have taken his wife to be your wife and have killed him with the sword of the people of Ammon. Now, therefore, the sword shall never depart from your house because you have despised me. And you have taken the wife of Uriah the Hittite to be your wife. God, through Nathan here, uh, demonstrates first that all sin is a despising of God. When we choose to sin, we are actively choosing to reject God. But even through this punishment that God brings in the life of David for his sin, God glorifies himself by proving himself to be a holy God who cannot accept sin. And through the punishment, he shows himself as just, as righteous. If God had not punished the sin of David, he would have shown himself to be an unrighteous God. But God glorifies himself by punishing David. But even though God punishes David, in fact, a terrible punishment, the first child from Bathsheba dies, we also see that God is glorified by forgiving personal sin. A couple verses later, 2 Samuel 12, verse 13, so, God, so David said to Nathan, I have sinned against the Lord. And Nathan said to David, The Lord also has put away your sin and shall not die. And so God proves himself also as a merciful, gracious, loving God who would put away sin. But God is also working in the life of David through his personal sin. He is working in your life, even through your personal 
choice to sin, and we see this in Psalm 51. We see that God is glorified in the life of David because he uses the sin in David's life to bring about repentance and growth in David's life that perhaps wouldn't have happened if he did not sin. We see in Psalm 51, verses 1 through 4, Have mercy upon me, O God, according to your loving kindness, according to the multitude of your tender mercies. Blot out my transgressions, wash me thoroughly from my iniquity, and cleanse me from my sin. For I acknowledge your transgressions, and my sin is always before me. Against you, you only have I sinned, and done this evil in your sight, that you may be found just when you speak, and blameless when you judge. In this psalm, the, the uh, goes on for a bunch of verses here. David writes it after he has repented of his sin with Bathsheba, and it proves that God has used that sin for growth in his life. And we find throughout Scripture that this is what God does. We see in Hebrews 12, 10 through 11, the author writes, For they indeed for a few days chastened us as seemed best to them, but he, talking about God, chastens us for our profit that we may be partakers of his holiness. So God disciplines or chastens us so that we might partake with him in holiness. Now, no chastening seems to be joyful for the present, but painful. Nevertheless, afterward, it yields the peaceful fruit of righteousness to those who have been trained by it. And so we see in the life of David, we see in the example here from Hebrews, that God uses the personal sin that you choose in your rejection of him for you to be more holy. And of course, that is only if you choose to repent of your sin. Because God is going to be glorified through your sin either way. If you reject him and never repent, he's going to be glorified in punishment. If you turn to him, he'll be glorified in forgiveness and helping you to grow. We also can recognize that God uses the sin of David to teach us how to respond to sin. If David had not sinned against Bathsheba, we would not have Psalm 51. We are given Psalm 51 because of David's sin. And David's, David's sin, then, is the means by which God teaches us in this particular example how to respond to sin. In my own life, um, I've experienced this pretty uh, Profoundly, uh, In my younger years, I uh, rejected God in just about every way you can, uh, just involved in drugs and, and uh, you know, just I sinned. And God, by his grace and mercy, snatched me out of that life. And now when I'm thinking back, you know, uh, 10 years ago to the life I had, I've often thought, would I change anything. I've asked myself the question, would I go back and change things? And I don't think I would, because through what God allowed me to experience in my life, I saw my need for him, and I turned to him. And I'm not sure I would have been humbled and brought to see God for who he is apart from those mistakes. And so rejoice in this God that worship this God who 
is loving you and can even use your horrible mistakes for his glory, for your good. Rejoice in this, God. Our Lord, O Lord, our Lord, how excellent is your name in all the earth. All of these examples, Joseph, Job, David, are ultimately pointing us to the example of Christ. In a very real sense, the entire Bible is about Christ. If you do not have, if the Bible is not about Christ everywhere, you are left with moralism. Do this or don't do this. The only way we have acceptance, access to God is through Jesus Christ. And so Christ is really the presupposition of the entire Bible. And we see all of these examples pointing to Jesus where God means or meant the greatest evil that ever happened for the greatest good. There is no sin that was worse than the sin of murdering the Son of God on the cross. as the worst sin that has ever been committed. There is no suffering that was worse than the suffering that Christ experienced on the cross, the perfect God-man suffering for something he did not commit experiencing, taking on himself the wrath of God. But even through this, the greatest sin, the greatest evil, God meant it for the greatest good. There is no glory that is greater than the gospel. We see in Romans 5, 8, and 9 where Paul writes, but God demonstrates his own love toward us that in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us much more than having now been justified by his blood, we shall be saved from wrath through him. And in this verse, we can see a couple ways that God has used this great tragedy for glory. We see first that God is glorified in pouring his wrath on Christ. Kind of in the same way that God is glorified in punishing David, God is glorified in pouring his wrath upon Christ. We see that we have the result of being saved from wrath because of Christ's death here in Romans 5, 8. What Christ took for us, what we deserved, was the wrath of God. Christ experienced this wrath, and it's what led him, if you remember, to cry out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? There, there's no greater suffering, as I said. The wrath of God was put on the perfect Christ for our sin, for my sin, for your sin. And in this, God is revealing himself to be holy. He is a holy God who punishes sin, a holy and just God. But God is also glorified by defeating sin and suffering. You see in this verse, he says also, having now been justified because of this, we are able to be justified. He also says, and we shall be saved. He's talking about the deliverance that we will experience when we go to be with God in heaven. Our sin and suffering has been completely defeated by Jesus, by Christ. If not, we would not be justified. We would not be made righteous. We would not be delivered. And in this, God is revealed to be more powerful than sin and suffering. And if you think about it, he reveals himself to be so powerful over sin and suffering that the work of the cross is decisive for eternity. 
It's not that we have the benefit of the cross just for a time. The benefit of the cross is for eternity, which shows God's great, powerful work. God is also shown in the cross to be good and caring enough to defeat it. Because you realize it's a logical possibility for God to be powerful enough to defeat sin and suffering, but to not care enough to defeat it. But God has revealed through the cross that he is loving, he is good, and he cares enough about us and about the existence of sin and suffering to defeat it. God is also glorified through the cross by using sin and suffering for our good. Um, you read in Acts 2, 23 and 24, there's a similar verse in Acts 4 as well, uh, where Luke writes him, talking about Christ, being delivered by the determined purpose and foreknowledge of God. Now, this is really an incredible verse because it says, basically, that Christ was delivered to be crucified by the determined purpose and foreknowledge of God. And this includes the greatest sin of all time. That's part of the plan of God. Even the worst sin that was ever committed is part of this plan. And how can we understand this? Well, as we said earlier, God is not responsible for sin. He's not the author of sin. He is perfectly holy and he's perfectly righteous. But God permitted those who were evil to murder his own son as part of his plan to reveal himself as great and glorious and to bring about the defeat of sin and death. That was part of his plan. And through this, God proves through the cross that he cares about us even if we don't understand why we are suffering, which is often the case. We don't understand why we're suffering. You see in Romans 5, but God demonstrates his own love toward us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Um, you might be in the midst of sin and suffering right now, especially suffering that you just don't understand. There doesn't seem to be any good reason for what you are going through. What the cross of Christ proves is that the reason for your suffering can't be because God doesn't love you. That's not a possibility because he has proved that he loves you through the gospel. He's proved it. You can know that you are not going through it because God doesn't love you and and that he is doing something greater in your life. O Lord, our Lord, how excellent is your name in all the earth. As I was thinking through these examples and just the general idea of God being glorified through our own sin and suffering, um, I sent my parents an email this week because I wanted to hear from them how have you seen God glorified even when things have just gotten worse? And I wanted to share with you some of the things that they said. Um, they said first <clears throat> that God has shown himself to be great in their life by giving them an awareness of their own weakness. He has humbled them. 
They talked also about God has been glorified by bringing them to a place where they depend more on Christ. An awareness of your own weakness brings you to a place where you realize you need Jesus. Um, God has also been glorified, they said, by all of the believers that have, have cared for them. Um, not only in providing uh, things for them, but praying for them. And I thank you so much for the many people here. I'm regularly asked here, uh, how is Micah? And that's just a powerful testimony to my own heart because it shows me that you all care for them and for him and are praying for them. They also talked about how God has been glorified by their testimony to one another. My mom was talking about how, um, you know, my brother goes through, because of the medications he's on, there's a lot of mental issues. Um, And my mom was saying how she has seen God work mightily in my dad's life by giving him patience that just can't make sense apart from Christ. And that's been a testimony to her. And so God is working even though things just get worse. And what a great God we serve who can take suffering and sin like this. And even worse, I know people in this room are going through things worse than even my parents are going through. But God is using all of it for his glory. He is going to be glorified. It's not a question. He is glorified, and he is going to be glorified. And I urge you today to worship this God. I've been focusing on all the ways that God is working, has worked in the past, and that he is working right now. But we all know that God is moving everything unstoppably towards a new heavens and a new earth. It's coming and nothing can stop it. We see in the book of Revelation uh, 21 verses 1 through 4, some highlights from that. Uh, John says, now I saw a new heaven and a new earth for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away. And we know that one of the main differences from this new heaven uh, that's different from the old heaven, or old earth, I should say, rather. Um, he says later, God himself will be with them and be their God, and God will wipe away every tear from their eyes. There shall be no more death, nor sorrow, nor crying. There shall be no more pain, for the former things have passed away. This is what God is moving us towards, and nothing can stop this from happening. If you are in Christ today, nothing can stop you from experiencing this. We also see in Revelation that even though God created a beautiful garden in the beginning, the end of all things will be another beautiful garden. In chapter 22, verses 1 through 5, And he showed me a pure river of water of life, clear as crystal, proceeding from the throne of God and of the Lamb. In the middle of its street and on either side of the river, was the tree of life, which bore twelve fruits, each tree yielding its fruit every month. The leaves of the tree were for the healing of the nations. And there shall be no more curse, but the throne of God and of the Lamb shall be in it. And his servants shall serve him, they shall see his face, and his name shall be on their foreheads. 
There shall be no night there. They need no lamp nor light of the sun, for the Lord God gives them light, and they shall reign forever and ever. And it's because of this and other verses like this that Paul can say in the book of Romans, For I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worthy to be compared with the glory that will be revealed in us. They're just not worthy. O Lord, our Lord, how excellent is your name in all the earth. Let's pray. Father God, I just thank you for your word. We just haven't even scratched the surface of the many mighty, awesome examples of how you have used sin and suffering throughout history. Examples that teach us how you are handling sin and suffering for your glory right now. And I thank you, Lord, also for the hope that you give us in Scripture for the elimination of all sin and suffering in the future. You are a good God. You are a God who is in control. Lord, I pray again for each of our hearts today. I pray that we would devote our lives to seeking your face, Lord. There's nothing other than that, that you deserve. You deserve our full allegiance, Lord. And I pray for my heart and the heart of every person in this room that we would be relentless in pursuing you, Lord. And I pray that you would give us the grace and that you would real um, teach us and help us to realize that we cannot follow you apart from your grace and uh, through the gospel. In Jesus' name I pray, amen.